not having enough work. Climate change. Blended finance. AI. Uh, shortages of fresh water. Energy transition. Large scale social disorder. Antibiotic resistant diseases. Education. Employment of private capital for social goods. Quantum computing. Thanks for coming, everybody. This is fantastic. Um, parents, students, just a quick poll of the students. Who's listened to the podcast? I took stats this year. That's like 98%. So that, <laughs> that's pretty much it. We, we, we've, we've had a success. And, uh, and what we're doing today is we're doing a live podcast. That doesn't mean that this is live filmed and being streamed. What it means is that we're going to record everything, and this is going to be our final episode of the season. We're going to put it out uh, online on iTunes. Uh, but before we get into what today's podcast is going to be, I thought I'd kind of share a bit of the story of how we got this to be this year, the Oxford Future of Business podcast. And uh, in the spirit of reflection, like everyone has been this morning, uh, I'll share that story. So we're here in launch. And for the students, you all know what launch week was. For parents, it's this really intense two weeks, if they were calling you, where uh, you're meeting all these people. They're all really impressive. You're getting their LinkedIn profiles. So you're thinking that you really don't deserve to be here. Um, but there, there's all these really interesting conversations, and everyone's so impressive. And then you have the dean come on stage and say, you know, Oxford is world-class people. And they're here to solve world-scale problems. So every conversation you have seems lofty. It seems like you, you're filled with this optimism. And we're sitting in a pub, Emily Brody and I, and reflecting on some of these conversations and everyone we're meeting, and definitely fueled by a few good English ales, which I have frequented since I've got here. And, and we, we're saying, we started talking about a bunch of things, and one, about how impressive everyone is, and two, about how much we love podcasts. And sitting there and like, well, how, how would it be to build a podcast? What would that be like? What do you need? It should be easy to record with your cell phone and, and off you go put it on iTunes. Like, we can do this. So Brody grabbed a napkin and he's like, yep, we're making a podcast. Here we go. And that was a year ago today. And now we, we have launched a podcast and we do have six episodes online um, and, and it's real. And it was just an amazing journey. It was so much fun midway through the year uh, to, to kind of really help us bring it along. Michael Ann and Paris joined the group. So I'll just get the podcast team to stand up here quickly. We've got Brody. And in the back, we've got Michael Ann and Paris. There you go. So it's been an absolute blast, and, and we're, we're really excited that you can be part of uh, the last episode of the season here. So what we're going to do is going to bring Emily up on stage. She's going to interview Nick Sabine and our own E2, and uh, we'll do that for about 30 or 40 minutes, then we'll do some Q&A. So think about some good questions, and uh, you might just make your, get your voice on the podcast. So off we go, and I'll bring you guys up now. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here, um, and thank you to everyone who has listened and commented and, and given us feedback so far. Um, this is something I've wanted to do sort of since we started the podcast, um, and to kind of bring a, another group of people rather than just me and Brody sitting in a room somewhere over there um, doing this on our own. So it's fantastic to have you all here. Um, the conversation today, building on the theme of the future of business, is um, a conversation that we're going to start off... We're going to talk about what it means to have integrity in business. How do you build a business with real integrity and what choices do you have to make to do that? What it means to have authentic entertainment in, a, in an era of Netflix and Spotify where we don't have to make any choices. How do we really choose how we're entertained and, and, and how we engage with each other? And then building on that theme, how do we 
uh, use digital to connect to place and what a place mean to us. And I think, you know, we've heard this morning so much about what Oxford means to us. And so I'm here with two people who've already thought very deeply about what do you, uh, what, what does place mean to communities? Um, so I'm going to do some introductions and then um, we'll see a little bit of what these two have, have created and then we'll dive into the conversation. Um, so Nick Sabine is the co-founder of Resident Advisor, an electronic music community with 300 million visitors every year. Bootstrapped with no VC investment, Ari has built a reputation as the broadsheet of electronic music. You can see why I liked, uh, wanted to bring Nick up here. <laughs> and rather than advertising and quick form content, focusing on a few cities around the world, Resident Advisor publishes several thousand word articles on underground scenes in places like Cairo and Tokyo and other cities around the world. And when the rest of the media is trending towards zero decision making, consuming only what Netflix and Spotify suggest to us, Ari is startling in building a passionate following for rigorous factual and artistic criticism. Nick is also an entrepreneurship expert and mentor here at the business school and, choice, and chose to join this community to provide a different vision of how to build businesses without investment accountable to oneself and one's team rather than to, than to external investors. It's a way of building businesses, both very modern and very old-fashioned. Can you join me in welcoming Nick to the So my other guest um, will be slightly more familiar to many of you in the audience. Yetu is a writer, a filmmaker, a data expert, and a very good friend. And not content with finishing everyone else's assignments for them this term, she also took a 360-degree immersive art film and dance experience to Sundance Festival this year during the MBA. Um, and in South Africa, she's a contributing editor of the website Our Friends, which tells amazing stories about Africa's millennials in design, photography, music, and fashion. She's one of the most future-thinking of our class, and I'm so excited to have her here um, on the podcast. She's someone I've been wanting to, to get on the show for, for a long time, so that's awesome. Okay, so to start off, um, we just want to show you uh, a short film about Resident Advisor to kind of set the scene for those of you who um, have not explored uh, electronic dance music. So if we can play that now. Okay, perfect. Here we go. the scenes, the people and the stories that make electronic music one of the most vital art forms of our time. We combine world-class journalism with event discovery tools and award-winning content to create an ecosystem for over 30 million readers a year. RA reports on cultural events around the clock, breaking global news stories and exploring the wider influence electronic music has on society. Our in-depth features and films document powerful subjects that champion the values of acceptance which underpin our culture. RA helps kickstart artists' careers, showcasing and supporting the headliners of tomorrow. The RA ecosystem has over one million artists, events and venues listed across the globe with unique tools that help promoters keep their local scenes thriving. 
In 2008, we launched the largest electronic music ticketing platform in the world, connecting fans to music events in over 50 countries. As electronic music's global impact increases, so does our audience. More than 3.5 million people read RA every month. Here this year gives you an idea of what it's like to try and uh, think about the future in a 900-year-old university uh, with 900-year-old Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> so um, I think we uh, maybe we'll start off with uh, asking Nick um, one of my favourite questions to ask on the podcast, which is if um, if you were going to describe resident advisor to a 10-year-old, how would you how would you describe it? Uh... I would describe it as, um, I would say, you know how you have textbooks for history, geography, maths, chemistry, etc. Um, we're essentially the textbook of electronic music. <laughs> and um, hopefully something that showcases and spotlights a phenomenal international community that one day they might be lucky enough to be part of. But a textbook is something that's very kind of definitive and fixed. And the interesting thing about electronic music is it's kind of evolving and changing all the time in response to how people engage with it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's been a while since I picked up a textbook. <laughs> I, I imagine they're a little more multimedia than, uh, than when I was in preschool. But, um, yeah, it's more I'm using that as a, as a frame of reference for mm-hmm. just in terms of, you know, one of our core values as a company is we care about the past, present, and future of electronic music. You know, we're not just interested in the here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also interested in ensuring that there's an ongoing legacy and an understanding of where this culture came from mm-hmm. and how we've arrived at the point we are today. We're as interested in that as we are in, you know, who the big artists will, will be in the next year or the next five years or what the sounds are um, that will inspire people from across the world. Mm-hmm. And um, so take us through a little bit uh, how Resident Advisor came to be and, and the kind of story of how you built it. Sure. Uh, so I'm originally from Sydney, as my accent might <laughs> indicate. And essentially we were just uh, kids that just loved going out. I cared about two things as a kid and not much else, and that was cricket and electronic music. <laughs> and uh, I pretty quickly realised I wasn't going to play cricket for Australia, so I parked that and I was like, electronic music, that's my thing. And... And so, you know, we were just going out a lot and, you know, music was, you know, just a huge focal point of my life. And so we wanted to, by virtue of going out, we wanted to contribute to the scene um, in, in our way. And we weren't, we weren't DJs, but, you know, we were super passionate about music and music was the thing that inspired us beyond anything else. And so we were like, hey, what, what's our thing here? And we, we realised that there wasn't really uh, somewhere in in Australia at least, which kind of pointed people to the most interesting events. And also we wanted a platform to talk about the music that was inspiring us, that was really moving us both emotionally and physically. And back then in 2001, it was kind of pre-blog, so you had to build a website. And fortunately, uh, a friend of mine, Paul, uh, my co-founder, he knew how to do that and I didn't. And uh, so just pretty quickly we hatched an idea and we said, you know, why don't we create a little home on the internet to essentially just write about music that we liked. And uh, we said, cool, um, you know, what do we need for that? And we realized that the barriers to entry for a digital publication in 2001 were fairly low. So uh, we both put in 400 Australian dollars. And that's all we've ever put in. And we've never borrowed a cent uh, since then. Uh, we've never wanted to. Um, we've always had a fairly um, 
strong ideology in terms of how we wanted to approach building this business um, around integrity and around honesty and not allowing for external influence in, in what we write. Um, and so that's kind of been our, I guess, our rudder for, to get us to this point. And uh, as a result, we've grown the business organically over that time from, um, yeah, from 2001 when a small number of people read it to now when a few more do. Yeah, yeah. So um, I do definitely want to come back to um, the, the building without without investment because for a group of people who've just struggled to learn what um, beta is for a year, um, it's a really interesting concept to, to come back to that. But before I do that, I want to um, just ask Yeti to to talk a little bit about two of the things that, that brought you to the stage today. So one is the film um, Evolve, Revolve. And I think, given the Wi-Fi, we might um, skip showing that, but we will send around a link afterwards to those of you who want to see it, because it's really extraordinary. Um, but tell us a little bit about the film and then also about our friends as well. Okay. Um, so I'm really excited to be here today. I think it's like quite surreal that I'm here in front of all my incredible classmates graduating tomorrow. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm here with one of my media heroes and I've got like family from South Africa visiting so that they can see me on stage today. So you guys know me as one of your classmates. You know me as a techie and a social impact person. Um, but I also have a very creative side. So back in 2011, my brother, um, Deji Dada, and I started um, a magazine. And in its form back then, it documented Pretoria and Johannesburg's electronic music scene. Um, the most current version that's still running now um, is called Our Friends, and it's a publication that features, um, as Emily mentioned, like African design, music, photography, and fashion. And what we're trying to do is actually create a space where we can say, how do we use those elements to drive social change? Um, so that's actually what was like a pivotal changing point in the direction that the, the website was moving in. Um, I'm also on stage because um, as of this year, I'm the Sundance New Frontier um, Lab Fellow with my partner, Sharifa Ali. Um, and we're working on a virtual reality film um, called Evolve Revolve. Um, which focuses on a Kenyan myth. So in, the, um, in Kenya, there's a Kikuyu tribe um, that believe that if you walk around a umugamo tree seven times, umugamo tree is like a wild fig tree, um, you actually change sex. So it's a very interesting, very, very old myth, and it tells a very different picture of what Kenya was. Um, because if you look at Kenya in terms of social climate now, um, you find a version of Kenya that there are like 17 laws against the LGBTQ community and it also has one of the highest rates of gender-based violence. So we're actually trying to use this film as a way to actually comment on the different changes and why those evolved um, as part of the film. So yeah, I'm very excited to be here. Was there a, a decision early on that you were never going to take investment? Or was it something which you found it difficult to raise investment and so that became something over time that, that, that became the, the ideology of the company or the, the philosophy of the company? How, how did you make those decisions? Um, well, for the first four and a, f four and a half years, uh, almost five actually, we um, essentially just did Resident Advisor on the side. Mm -hmm. So it was, we never started it to make money. Mm -hmm. so that's a good starting place um, <laughs> in terms of like it changes your frame of reference for wanting investment or whatever. Like right. we're not starting this thing for commercial benefit. So that right. kind of takes that off the table at least. Um, also, not with the expectation that it would be this big thing, but just something that we wanted to do as a passion project basically. Right. And so for the first four, four and a half, five years, we, we were just doing this on the side. So, you know, we'd, um, I was working for an ad agency. Um, my co-founder, Paul, was working for a design agency. And, you know, we would work in the mornings and then, 
you know, probably a little bit too much during work, then, you know, at lunch times and then, you know, late into the evening until 12 or 1. And then, you know, then you start again the next day and wake up at 6 and, you know, essentially doing two mm-hmm. full-time jobs for the space of five years. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of like our alternative to investment, I guess. Right. And uh, so, I th- you know, for us, it wasn't, we never really, you know, the costs of running an online business at that point were maybe $50 a month or something. You know, everybody, we were contributing all our time for free. And, you know, essentially it was just friends who were, um, you know, as interested and as keen to share their knowledge and their appreciation and their passion for electronic music as we were. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was writing a lot of the content and the quality of the journalism has got a lot better since then. (laughs) But, um, you know, we're essentially, there was just a lot of us who were, you know, contributing a lot of man hours to something that we believed in that wasn't being shaped for commercial benefit. It was just being shaped for because we felt... um, you know, that we were doing something unique in terms of how we were critiquing the art form that we were most passionate about. And we never wanted to have that compromised um, by uh, external um, decision-making, basically, and external considerations. And in the publishing space, you know, commercial influence is, is rife. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we wanted to go down a different path. And for us, it wasn't by virtue of the fact that we weren't doing it to make money. It didn't really matter to us if 100 people read it or 1,000 people read it or 100,000 people read it. It was more about we were just commenting on the things, the music that excited us, the stuff mm-hmm. that, was, that we were most excited about. And, you know, essentially RA exists to connect the electronic music community and support local scenes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we felt that we could do that without necessarily needing to raise a ton of money um, obviously, it would allow it to do certain things faster and you could hire more people and um, you've got more of a buffer if you make some bad decisions and stuff like that. But, um, you know, we felt that we could do it our way. And, um, you know, and that's brought us to this point where, you know, we write about what we want to write about without anybody else deciding what we should or shouldn't write about. And has there ever been a point where you talked a little bit about, you know, uh, you can do things faster if you raise investment money. There's, there's a kind of ease to, to having that, that buffer. Is there, has there ever been a point where you've not been able to do something you desperately wanted to be able to do because you didn't have that kind of additional buffer? I mean, because we've grown it so... I, we also existed in a different time. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we started in 2001. You know, now, you know, it's a very different world. So now if you've got an idea and it's not successful in the first six months, it's a failure or somebody else will do it with more money or whatever. You know, we had eight years of building a brand around an approach before anyone really cared what we were doing outside of, like, a very small community. And... Um, and that, you know, that was significantly advantageous for us because as people discovered who we were, we'd had this long legacy of doing things a certain way. Um, but it wasn't so much about, um, you know, there was a specific project that we couldn't do or, or something like that. I think it was less about the, the financial aspect and maybe the skills aspect because obviously we've had to learn a lot mm-hmm. just as we go, you know, made a ton of mistakes along the way and learned from those things. And, you know, obviously... You investors provide money, of course they do, but they also provide expertise and experience. And um, by virtue of not engaging with those people um, in that in that way, then you're kind of cutting yourself off from that. And um, you know, we felt you know we've obviously we've done okay with it. And uh, but there's certainly things that we you know might have done differently had we um, known what we know now. Um, but I think it's 
No, there's nothing, you know, majorly telling. You know, we might have got to places, we certainly would have got to places faster. Mm-hmm. You know, like I could hire 50 developers tomorrow and they'd all be full-time busy straight away. Um, so there's a ton of stuff that we want to do. We're a really ambitious company. Um, you know, our roadmap for the next two, three years, you know, is really exciting and it would be great to do those things faster. But equally, I'd rather kind of do them at our pace, do them in our way and um, kind of retain the, the independence of, um, of what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because some of the the best things or a lot of the best things that happen in our community and our industry are from a place of independence and um, and that's something that we that we want to support yeah so i'm gonna um kind of focus on you for a second so i'm um, in ter- picking up that last comment in terms of coming at things from a place of independence what what drove you to tell this particular story that's in evolve revolve why was it important to you um, to tell that story and kind of how did you talk us through the, the business side of things? How did you fund it? How did you kind of create it, etc.? Um, so for me, I think I'm always, there are a lot of things, oh, wait, it maybe goes back to a comment that I heard that when you come across like different stories that break your heart, um, you should perhaps be the person that does something about it because you might be the only one that cares the, about the problem the way that you do, um, and you might, own, you might have the only set of skills that can fix it the way that you could. Um, and for me, I kept hearing, there are a lot of stories in South Africa about how women are attacked, um, and the same applies to Kenya, where my partner is from, Sharifa. And we were like, well, we see this big problem, and we see this interesting myth as well, because um, Sharifa came across it in a play when she was in New York, um, while she's been in New York. And we were like, well, how about we actually try to create a social movement around this piece um, in order to get some change um, in, that, in that space? Um, we've been working on the project for the last year and a half, um, and we're now at the stage where there was an like initial prototype, but now we're moving on to um, storyboarding the final, the, final, the final production piece. We were actually supposed to be doing it in two weeks, but I think they're moving um, that exercise out. Um, and we're going to be premiering like actual like Sundance um, Film Festival in 2020, which is going to be really exciting. Um, Congratulations! Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but funding, um, you know, Evolve Revolve has been an interesting um, experience. We're lucky to be partnered with Atlas Five, um, which is probably like the world's biggest or best um, VR production studio in the world. Um, we have Anton Quayrol, who is like our, we call him God Dad. Um, who manages like everything, and he's our producer in terms of getting money. Um, one of my biggest lessons for this year has been um, how to actually consider financing for films. I did not know. I mean, like Sharifa and I are co-creators on this piece. We know nothing about the film industry. Her, um, at least Sharifa has like a theater background. I'm a techie. Um, but it's, it's been a learning experience. Um, just so you know, um, the film industry kind of works the same as the VC industry does. Um, people come, you come up with your own pitch deck, um, and you rock up and they decide, well, we've looked at your pitch deck, but we just like your team. Um, so we're just going to give you money, however, we, however much we feel like we're going to give you. Um, and I have issues with the VC industry for that reason. But what I realized um, is that we can actually structure the film with an impact investing focus. Um, that was actually something that I've now learned in the business program, that you could perhaps have impact returns we can actually set metrics that we're trying to create, because it's a social impact film, um, in order to um, generate uh, revenue like that. So we're actually looking at alternative um, means to do that because we're looking for slower capital. Um, We have a distribution plan that is actually quite interesting for the film because VR is actually, virtual reality is actually quite exclusionary. 
um, when you look at it. I, I mean, like, is the film just going to be shown at film festivals and you guys don't get to see it? Um, if we try to take it to Kenya or to South Africa, how does that look like? Um, so with in mind of creating it for a broader audience, um, we obviously need a lot more financing to do that. So we're still in the fundraising process. We have managed to raise quite a bit now to get um, the initial storyboard and concept out. Um, and then we'll be continuing on to carry on fundraise during while we're making the rest of these. And why was it important to you to make it in VR? So there's many different ways of telling the story. Um, we did consider, no, so how we think of virtual reality is how do we tell the story using the best tool? You don't use the technology to guide your choice for virtual reality, but when we discovered that there's something amazing about being the tree, when you see this character go on this like journey in it as like, a very powerful piece, we thought that there was something very special there. Um, so originally it was a 360 degree piece, um, but now there's going to be kind of like CGI live action elements which are trying to engage you as the viewer in there. It's important for us because we're trying to create an experience where you are fundamentally changed by what you've seen and what you've experienced in that piece and that you consider other um, different perspectives in it. Um, so that's why virtual reality was then the option we decided to explore. And there's many different ways. Um, obviously, while being part of the program, we've had technology for impact. You remember the self-driven course that we decided to you know, get the business school to create for us. And listening to Mel Slater, one of our guest speakers, come in, and he talks about embodiment <coughs> VR, where you get to put yourself in other genders or other races to experience things. Virtual reality is a very powerful tool um, to get us to convert perspectives. Obviously, we have to work around the limitations of it because, you know, 2D, a YouTube video is much easier. Um, but we think that we can create a more powerful experience using virtual reality. So there's kind of a couple of things you've, you've drawn out there which I think are really interesting to kind of compare and contrast with, with the resident advisor. And, and one is um, the conversation we were having earlier about what is the right content for the right uh, story to tell. Mm -hmm. And um, some of your articles are, you know, 10,000 words long and um, you have this reputation of being very kind of critical, very fact-based. And what, certainly when I think about music and my music experiences, I don't necessarily think of them as super fact-based. <laughs> and, and a lot of the content I now think about when it comes to music are kind of short-form Instagram stories. And it may be there and in the moment, but it's, um, it's, it's very subjective. It's, it's, it's kind of what's coming in. So why do you choose to have this very journalistic attitude to something which the, where the rest of the world is going towards a more of a kind of content creation way of approaching the subject? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, first and foremost, like we're deeply passionate about great journalism and long-form journalism especially. So um, from the very beginning, it's something that we wanted to support and, um, and will always continue to do so. But I think the, the context and um, how you use technology to tell stories is something that um, will become increasingly important over the next few years. And it's, I think it's, you know, it's easy to think our oh, technology allows for you know, easier distribution and better storytelling and all of this stuff, but it's important to remember that your reader's expectations will change at the same time and often ahead of the, the pace that you can move. So it's, um, it's kind of trying to balance those things and really um, ensure that you're set up in a way that allows you to utilise the latest technology to tell stories in the most compelling way. Um, but the way that you present the stories now needs to be 
as compelling as the story them, as the, mm-hmm. themselves to, to be successful and mm-hmm. to stand out. And um, so some of those features that you reference, um, you know, where they are 10,000 words, you know, oral histories of various things over the years is, you know, we just felt that by virtue of the fact that they're legacy pieces and they will hopefully exist forever mm-hmm. um we kind of wanted them to be exhaustive and for them to you know for us to interview 50 or 100 people to get um different perspectives on that particular subject matter was really important to us to arguably present the most compelling piece on something that is fundamental to our industry and our community and will be you know 50 years down the line so we didn't it's not about like the here and now it's about creating something that um that is factually based that is exhaustive that is super deep um on the flip side of that you know we'll also put together like a best new releases playlist on Spotify right. for someone that um, wants to discover music in a different way. And, you know, one of the things that one of our big focuses as a, as a media company over the next few years is, is kind of modernizing music discovery. Um, and, but that doesn't mean just all of a sudden just move everything to, you know, just being able to one sentence, you know, this is a banger, listen to it. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's, it's also, you know, combining that stuff. So, you know, uh, young kid from you know china or norway or argentina or whatever can come to ra and they know they like electronic music but they're not quite sure what they like um but we can kind of lead them down the rabbit hole a little bit you know you like right. house music or you'd like this and and do that in a way that's um in keeping with the way that they're used to listening to music which is literally you know on a streaming platform bang from this to this to this right and we need to evolve the platform to help them on their musical their journey of musical discovery um but equally like long form journalism and you know the deeper the better in my opinion has a place and always will have a place in the media mm-hmm. and so um and maybe they'll only come to that like a few years later but once they've worked out they like house music and they like different artists then maybe they want to find out where house music comes from so well we can tell you and we can tell you in a piece that we may have written seven years ago that's adver- as relevant today as it was then right one thing that's interesting about your journey and, and can you've touched on it a couple of times in that is um, you started off in Sydney writing about what was happening in your place. You then kind of went global and now through kind of the listings and the ticketing platform, you're bringing people back down into their place and you have teams kind of around the world connecting people to place. And this also kind of relates to, to your website in, in Pretoria and Johannesburg. And one thing I find really interesting in your, you have these great values, which you shared with me. And the final one is, we're always front left and always share our water, which is something which MBAs this week need to kind of remember. But the, talk, talk to me a bit about um, what it means to be always front left. Yeah, sure. So um, front left is in reference to the dance floor um, and being front left in front of one of the main speaker stacks. And essentially that's um, riffing off the fact that our community is, is very level. And by that, I mean, it's not uncommon to be at a festival or be at an event and see the biggest artist that's performing at that event being on the dance floor with some kid that's just going on his first night out with the people that's just clocked off the bar with the sound engineer, whatever. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a community of like-minded people, which is um, there isn't this kind of like elite hierarchy. 
And so it's kind of just a reminder for that for us, like by virtue of what we do, um, you know, obviously we could be anywhere at a festival or in a club, <clears throat> you know, we could be backstage or we could be in the green room or, or we could be just like sitting by the bar having a drink. But we're like, no, like, you know, we're we're part of this. We're in th- as like I'm as passionate about electronic music now as I was in 2001. And, you know, I want us to always consider that. And I want us to always remember to be on the dance floor as part of the community. I think the moment you, um, you know, it's one thing um, to kind of to build an online community, but you need to be you need to be part of that community specifically. You can't be critiquing it or trying to support it from afar. You need to be bedded into it and you need to be adding value to it and supporting it, not, um, you know, not seeing it as an opportunity for commercial benefit and extracting value from it. You need to kind of look at it the other way. Right. And um, that's kind of a reminder yeah. to, to do that. So when when we go out into the world and, th- and start thinking about how we build our businesses and there are sort of two things which you seem to have really embodied, which we've been learning about this year. One is this kind of idea of purpose and integrity in business. And there seems to be something which your community really responds to in your authenticity and and your integrity and in what you write and and the way you act. Um, And the other is uh, the idea that, you know, we've been discussing a lot of what does the future of work look like? How how do we build companies when everything is completely decentralized? There are no offices. There are no physical places anymore. And you seem to be building a business that is not quite antithetical to both those things, but is definitely not kind of fully going in that direction. Do you think that that, that what you're doing is the future or is kind of the last vestige of, of what was possible before? Um, well, hopefully it's the future. Or, <laughs> or, um, <laughs> well, we won't keep it going for much longer with our... Uh, well, we've, essentially, we've, hopefully it's the future in terms of the way that we're evolving our business, the way that we allow people to um, engage with our content, uh, but we're essentially running an old school business model. You know, at the end of the year, we need to earn a pound or a euro or a dollar more than we spend. Otherwise, we don't have a business. And, um, and that's not necessarily the norm nowadays, in, uh, especially in the kind of the digital and the tech era. Um, so, but it's, it's the way that we wanted to do it. And uh, I think, so hopefully in a, on a, in a business sense, yeah, maybe we are old school in that regard, but um, you know, that re- retains our independence um, and that's something that is really important to us. So, but from a kind of platform evolution point of view, um, you know, if, if we stay old school or even, you know, begin to settle for like any, any business now in any industry, the moment they think, you know, we've got this and, you know, we're at the top of our game or whatever, like the decline starts there. And, um, and that's something that I'm always instilling in, um, in our staff and in our, in our company is, um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that for many people we're considered the leader in our field and, and that's a great position to be in. Um, but we're only in that position because, you know, we're accountable to ourselves to constantly keep challenging ourselves, constantly keep pushing ourselves and constantly keep um, evolving and making sure that um, the, the business is utilising the advancement in technology to our benefit and to the benefit of our audience um, in the most meaningful way because there's 150 different options and ideas in terms of what you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually really um, important to know the you know the 140 that you shouldn't do but the 10 that'll make the most meaningful difference um, for you and your vision as a business yeah I actually have a point on that one so um, I, I get to have the last laugh with my parents um, because um, resident advisor was actually one of the founding value of honesty and integrity in journalism was actually one of the founding principles for um, our website when we started. So, like, I'm having a fangirl moment here as well. And, and to my dad up there, uh, we were working when we went out. <laughs> um, 
but I think in terms of building integrity and honesty into your work and stuff, um, my brother and I had to make some very important decisions about um, which companies we re received money from, which companies we decided to work on, and it was based on like ethical stances that we felt that they did. And you know, in some ways, you do actually. Well, sometimes we lose out, but for us, it was more important to have an ethical stand on what we reported. I think that's actually why um, the blog converted in 2013 to become more socially focused, because we felt that that was in line with where we were moving together. Um, but, you know, I think it's just important to realize that as business leaders, um, honesty and integrity, when you build those core values into your business, it might cost you um, certain opportunities. Um, but for you, you need to decide with what you're going to live with and what you will not. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm just looking at the time and conscious um, that we are the last event of the day. So I'm going to open up to the audience now for questions. Um, and I hope that there are meant to be some mics around. Yeah, fantastic. So um, do raise your hand for questions. We'll take questions for about uh, 15 minutes and then I'll, I'll finish this off. So. Anyone in the audience? Okay, I'm going to start down here, the lady down here. <laughs> uh, it's not quite an MBA buzzword, but one of the recurring conversations we've had this year is about the Medio um, eco chamber. So I'd love to hear how you think about your work um, through the lens of that conversation, including how you balance your mission and your business decisions, which you've both um, spoken to in part. Um, and then also how you think about reaching out to audiences that aren't your obvious target audience, whether that's something that you um, specifically create content towards, whether you're really trying to engage them or you're ignoring them in pursuit of um, staying true to the people who really uh, connect with your mission uh, more naturally. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I can maybe try that one because we had, um, Sharif and I have been like an, on a journey with our like Sundance mentors and we had a very pivotal moment because we realized we were trying to create a social impact film for Kenyan and South African people. And we hadn't consulted any South African and Kenyan people <laughs> in the design process. Yeah, and you know, I consider myself a design thinker, really. Um, so um, that for me was very pivotal because you think that you have this you know, idea, this image of what you're trying to do and what change you're trying to create, and you never think to engage other people. That's where that echoing chamber comes up, because we were just like passing ideas in between us, and we're like, this is amazing, this is amazing, and never really saying, actually, I need to step outside and just ask if anyone would be interested in this. So I think when you're considering that, even though you know you have a mission, and for us it's to create change in this space, um, you have to obviously engage the audiences that you're going to be working with. It's a simple, it's like, it's common sense design. Um, but we so often forget it when we have all these cool ideas. I mean, it, it even made us at one point question virtual reality is a medium, but now we're trying to work around the challenges of it because we still consider it's a very impactful experience um, for you. Um, but yeah, I think that for us was the biggest lesson is that, you know, to stop the echoing chamber, go and listen to other perspectives. Go and read articles that make you uncomfortable. Go and listen to other people's opinions that you definitely don't agree with um, in order to understand the problem so much greater and to understand them because they're the ones that have to receive the message in the end. And I mean, for you, you have three and a half million visitors a, a month that you're still often described as a niche. How do you kind of speak to people outside of that? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I think uh, 
simple-ish solution is hire the people that you want to engage. <laughs> so don't just, like, it's easy. And, you know, we've been guilty of it um, at times, certainly, as well. You're making a lot of assumptions about what, you know, a certain demographic wants or a certain region wants or a certain set of people or a scene or whatever you like, you know, and you make these assumptions. But, um, you know, there's a famous saying about assumptions, and it's right, you know. And so you need to, um, you know, you need to make sure that, you know, if you want um, a more diverse audience or if you want a younger audience or whatever, then you need to hire younger people. You need to hire people from diverse backgrounds. And um, to make sure that those those people and those scenes and those points of view are being represented internally, and then you're making those decisions from a very genuine place uh, rather than just um, assuming what people want um, based on your certain set of experiences. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, okay, so there are a couple of others. Um, it will go up there and then back there and then down there. Nick, this question for you. Um, you described your uh, community as sort of being on a level and your front left and so the sort of the rising DJ superstar can be dancing with the, the young kid or the guy who handles tickets or, or whatever it is. Um, you also described how you have an old school business model. So um, how, how does the, the sort of the equality in your community translate into your your business, which is very much a community-driven business, what kind of uh, hierarchical structure is there, and does it does it sort of look similar or feel similar to the community, which is all on the level? Uh, hope I mean I'll speak on behalf of my staff. Um, <laughs> I, I ho hopefully, yes. Um, you know, we you know the the term kind of family gets a bit overused in business, but uh, I like to think of us that way. You know, we have. Um, we have a prerequisite to work at Resident Advisor, which is you have to be passionate about electronic music. So it doesn't matter if you're the CFO or the office junior or whatever, you need that single passion point. And that makes it harder. How, how do you interview for that? Um, do you kind of go through their Spotify and kind of look at what they're listening yeah, Well, I don't want to give away all the secrets, okay. right? But, right. Um, but it's, you know, and, and certainly for developers and things like that, it, um, uh, it makes it harder to hire them because there's you know, less developers than there are jobs um, for that. So, you know, we take an already tight um, kind of talent pool and we shrink it down even more so. Um, but it means once you get these people in the building, they, um, they can pass the, what I call like the long flight hall, the long haul flight test, which is, you know, that you could sit next to anyone in the company at any level for a flight from, you know, London to Australia. And, um, and you know, you'd have at least one thing to talk about. And, uh, and that single kind of passion point um, is a really powerful thing for, for a business. And so it means that you're on a level, to your point, like with someone who's just started at whatever level they are. Um, you can talk about music, you can talk about festivals you like, whatever it may be. And, uh, and it's one of the things I think that's really um, kind of given us a, a strong internal culture is that single passion point. And uh, we've never been a particularly hierarchical organisation or, or anything like that. So I'd like to think that the business reflects the dance floor. It's a great phrase. <laughs> um, so we're going to go over here, back there. Yeah. So this has been an amazing juxtaposition of two really passionate people who are both artists, both creating and influencing communities, but doing it with two totally different tools. Um, and we've spent a lot of time this year referencing uh, thinking fast and slow and this notion of, you know, there's, there's one part of our brains that is influenced by ration and facts and information. And so you've definitely got that position represented here, creating these 10,000 word 
exposés from which um, people can excerpt facts to use to, to support their arguments. And then you have the other part of your brain and the way that it makes decisions, which is that you have a visceral emotional response to something. And then you just find the information that backs that up. Um, so it's really fascinating to have both of you on the stage. Um, and I'd kind of like to hear about why you chose to use the particular tool that you use. And I'd, I'd like to hear you ask each other a question if that doesn't start a whole second podcast. Can <laughs> <laughs> I go first? Um, I, why did you choose to use long form? (laughs) (laughs) Can can I build on that? I know I'm not meant to be asking questions now, but hey, it's my podcast. Um, so, (laughs) um, you wanted to say that all season, right? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) If only it was the first time I said that. Um, the, you've spoken a couple of times about your passion for journalism specifically. Mm. So I'd really interested to understand where that comes from. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where it comes from per se, but I, you know, I just, I really admire great writing, um, you know, especially in the nonfiction space. Um, but, you know, I'm an avid subscriber to the New Yorker and, um, you know, I, but because, mainly because of the journalism, like I know that it doesn't matter if the article's about lemonade, it'll be the best article that's ever been written about lemonade. And, and like, yeah, I will as much appreciate the, the fascinating story of which there are as well as the quality of the writing. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to create a platform that could support the best journalists in electronic music who I believe write for us. But they write for us because we've got the best distribution platform for them mm-hmm. um, and you know, we've got incredible editors that can make their work you know, really shine. And so hopefully as it's, a, um, it's the most viable platform for the best journalists um, within our art form um, to showcase their work. And that's something that we always wanted to um, provide, basically, and hopefully um, always will. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I guess I can maybe speak to two, two parts. Um, with our friends, we focused heavily on written pieces and specifically with photojournalism. Um, so within the team, like all of us are all trained photographers now, um, shooting different like concert photography, but most importantly, when we're doing social documentary, um, we were all very good at that. Um, I think for us, it was important because we saw, it was remember who we're creating content for, and at you know, the times that we've seen like our friends evolve, we've also seen kind of like our audience evolve with the times. So we were focused heavily on the, the written pieces and photojournalism because that's what our audience wanted. Um, but you know, the way that the, our friends is moving now, we're creating a lot more video short form content because people are consuming a lot more of that. It's been an interesting change for us um, because for us it's more important that the message gets across. Um, but I mean, like in terms of like, you know, bootstrapping and hiring your way through things and, and trying to, you know, raise funds that way, learning how to do video journalism, which was never one of our core strengths until we got team members that could do that was, was a bit of a mission. Um, I think I did speak a bit about the choice for VR for, um, for, um, Evolve Revolve, um, which is more to create a very personal and connected experience. I guess additionally on top of that, there are certain things you can do in virtual reality to engage um, the user um, that you could never do in any other art form. And one of the things that we're exploring for a film festival setup would be a mixed reality experience where you're touched in the experience. Like maybe someone will give you a hug in the experience while you see someone reaching for you, um, which could create a very different um, emotional take on the piece. Okay, I think we probably have time for one more question. Um, so is there any more in the audience? 
Yeah, one more here. I don't want to open a tin of worms, but um, <laughs> there is a debate ongoing at the moment about whether it is the place for a platform to influence people. So Facebook, for example, uh, Google, same, same, same issue. As the founder of a platform, and clearly an opinionated one, what's your view? <laughs> um, I think you've got to look at the motives. Um, we, we want to influence people, of course we do, um, but we want to influence them positively. And we want to, you know, we essentially write about stuff that interests us and stuff that we believe in, artists that we think are worth supporting and showcasing. So, yes, we hope to influence our audience by introducing them to music and scenes and events that they mightn't otherwise uh, have discovered on their own but to enhance their life, to positively impact their existence on this planet. Um, Facebook, not so much. And uh, so I think, you know, like, yes, platforms, you know, will, um, you know, if it, they will have a, a purpose to influence, um, but you have to look at the motives of that purpose, and, uh, and that can obviously exist on a fairly wide scale. Fantastic. Um, thank you both so much. Um, and I'd like to invite the audience just to join me in a round of applause because I've really enjoyed it. Just to, um, just to finish off this episode, um, we've been talking all morning about uh, this place and what this place means to us. And during, uh, during this conversation, we've also talked about place and what it means. And when I arrived in Oxford, my dad gave me a book which was actually written about 100 years ago. It's based in Oxford. And it's about a girl who comes to Oxford and has adventures. And there's a wonderful description um, of, of this place which I'd like to read to you. Oxford, that lotus land, saps the willpower, the power of action. But in doing so, it clarifies the mind, makes larger the vision, gives above all that playful and caressing suavity of manner, which comes of a conviction that nothing matters except ideas. If the colleges could be transferred to the dry, embracing top of some hill, doubtless they would be more evidently useful to the nation. But let us be glad there is no engineer or enchanter to compass that task, I would like to have the rest of England subside into the sea than have Oxford set on a salubrious level. For there is nothing in England to be matched with what lurks in the vapours of these meadows and in the shadows of these spires, that mysterious, innubial spirit, the spirit of Oxford. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Future of Business podcast brought to you by Saeed Business School. This is the last episode in the current series of the podcast. We started it this year to pursue and share some of the incredible conversations we were privileged enough to have during our year as MBAs in Oxford. Sadly, our year is in an end, but the podcast will continue. A brand new team from the 2018-19 cohort will be taking over and we're really looking forward to listening to what they do next in season two. Please do subscribe in iTunes so you get the new episodes when they arrive. A huge thank you to all our listeners from this season for your feedback and support. It's been an absolute pleasure being your host for this inaugural season of the show. 
So, for the final time, the Future of Business podcast was created by Patrick, Brody, Emily, Michael Ann, and Paris. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you.